This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using strategies based on academic papers and books with long-term track records of success. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. With value stocks showing signs of turning around, Validia offers more than 10 systematic value models backed by long-term research, including strategies based on Joseph Piotrowski's F-score, Ben Graham's defensive investor from The Intelligent Investor, Joel Greenblatt's Magic Formula, The Value Composite from Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street, and many others. Investors can access these strategies through concentrated 10 and 20 stock model portfolios or see how stocks rank based on each model's specific investment criteria. Through the end of March, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A dot com forward slash Toby. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Christopher Bloomstrand of Semper Augustus. We're going to talk Berkshire Hathaway. We're going to unpack the latest letter and the long history of Berkshire. Chris is an absolute expert on it, and it'll be a fascinating discussion coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. What did you make of the most recent letter from uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway? You know, I thought it was terrific. Um, you know, you've had a couple of years now of the, the stock itself not doing very well, up 2.4% last year. And, you know, for, for the duration of my ownership of Berkshire, which goes back to February 2000, and, you know, that was the year I attended my first meeting. We had bought the stock after it had been cut in half following the Gen Ray deal. I paid on the order of 105% a book. But if you go back, you know, for those that weren't in the room or who haven't seen the transcripts or the CNBC audio uh, of the meetings, I mean, I mean, even Buffett was getting huge heat for not owning tech stocks and lagging. The NASDAQ was up 84, 87% in 1999. Um, you know, in 99, the Berkshire stock portfolio was down, I believe, because, you know, all those nifty 50, you know, the reiteration of the nifty blue chips, Coca-Cola, which was 45% of the stock portfolio peaked. And so, you know, for the duration of my ownership of Berkshire, which is now 21 plus years, um, you know, there's just a lot of naysayers and, and critics. And a lot of it gets misplaced. I think, you know, there are a handful of people in the media that, that I think wrongfully point out the wrong metrics. Um, I wouldn't measure the stock price. I mean, that's not in Mr. Buffett's control. I mean, it's a right. little bit more in his control now that he's gone down the path of buying back shares. But, you know, in my world, the, the business over the last couple of years compounded at you know, kind of its return on equity. So I had it at 11% last year, and that's with a decline in a lot of the operating businesses. But the stock portfolio, thanks to Apple, has knocked the cover off the ball. So there, there's a lot of misapplied kind of negativity toward Berkshire, which I've always found terrific because, you know, to the extent 
we have cash flows in or dividends in or new clients with deposits. Um, I've got to put money to work. And, you know, I, I'm the odd bird that would rather have very cheap stocks all the time than expensive stocks. And, you know, I think my buying over the years has been at very attractive prices, you know, kind of price to book is the fashionable way it tends to get measured. And that's not really how we look at it. But, you know, the stock has generally been very consistently cheap. And it spent the majority of the 1990s, very expensive, you know, the business had compounded at 25% a year for 30 plus years, you know, 35, 37 years, got very rich in 98. Um, you know, Berkshire bought a bunch of businesses during that decade using the shares as currency. Uh, he'd been an active buyer of the stock back in the 1970s and even the late 1960s when it traded at less than book. He had a 33 year period where he didn't buy any shares back uh, with the exception of right on the right at the bottom of the 1987 stock market crash. And, you know, the stock has been cheap, but I think there've been enough uses of capital post the Gen Ray deal. You know, had they not done that deal, you wouldn't own the utility operations. You wouldn't own the railroad. It was that diversion of capital that's allowed the emphasis on the stock portfolio to, to shrink materially. And, the last 12 years have been hell on active stock pickers. As you know, S&P's done 15% a year for the last 12, you know, from the 08 low. And, you know, hardly, you know, an active manager, certainly those that, that aren't loaded into your more growthy businesses have lagged. But, you know, the Berkshire stock portfolio has done 12 and a half over that period. Apple has been a huge save, you know, investing 35, 36 billion in it and turning it into a 120 plus billion dollar position has driven the bus. So the stocks in the last two years have materially outperformed the S&P, but you wouldn't know it because the stock hadn't done that well, but that's okay. And if we're really genuinely in repurchase mode, and I spent a lot of time in my letter this year talking about share repurchases and kind of the impact on how that works at Berkshire, we'd all rather have very inexpensive stock. Now, you know, clients don't want to hear that because everybody likes to look at their statements and see that they're making money, but I'd far rather have the underlying business value compounding and, and the shares be cheap, which would give the Berkshires of the world opportunities to buy shares back if that's kind of the best use of capital. And in Berkshire's case, it's a terrific use of capital. I uh, have around, I'm not entirely sure when I said it, but sometime last year, I, I started saying that, that I thought that Apple trade was the greatest trade ever because for a number of reasons, one, because he deployed so much capital uh, so rapidly into that position. And um, secondly, because it's such a big, Apple is such a big company, such an obvious company that everybody knows, everybody's got some device in their house that's an Apple device. And it was just, I just thought it was a great illustration of what a great investor he is that he took that opportunity to just deploy an enormous amount of capital. And then oh, it, it's gratifying to see it was rewarded so quickly, but it's funny that he's had so little kind of credit for that. W why do you think that is? You know, he's always just been kind of regarded as the anti-tech. And, you know, it's very easy when you're on, on as big of a public stage as he is with your portfolio broadcast to the world on a quarterly basis. It's very easy to nitpick the mistakes. 
And, you know, between, you know, when you're, you're running 200 plus billion, you know, what's now pushing $300 billion in an in, in equity portfolio, there are only so many businesses that you can buy. And so it's easy to flag the IBMs and it's easy to flag the, 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 what you'd call, I guess, the errors of omission, you know, not owning Microsoft with Bill Gates, you know, sitting, you know, with him, you know, for their weekly bridge game and at all the directors meetings and on the phone and vacationing constantly. And so, you know, I think the, the, I think his regard as a stock picker has waned, which is ridiculous. Um, And even, you know, the naysayers would say, well, you know, Todd probably, but Todd or Ted initiated the initial billion dollar investment in Apple and only for, you know, finding God was he able to buy a tech stock for the first time. But, you know, it took putting $35 billion into a tech stock, which, you know, if you look at, if you look at the way Mr. Buffett buys stocks, he buys earning power. He's buying well-known predictable earning power. And so, you know, having, you know, tested the middle rail on airlines in the past and having kind of blown those positions up in a pandemic and being faulted for selling those too early, conceivably, and even, you know, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan taking losses on those positions. You know, I think, I think the sense that he's not a great stock picker, but, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the, the entire history of, of, of the stock picking, you know, it's not the ability to find 300 or 400 ideas. It's the ability to your point to get a lot of capital in something when it really makes sense and let it grow from there. I mean, so you go back to all the big deals, American Express and Washington Post, Coca-Cola, Geico, when it was publicly traded. I mean, you know, those things drove the bus and Apple here recently has driven the bus, but when he bought it, it was 12 or 13 times. You know, I think all you had to do, and I didn't do it, I thought, oh, hell, they got to reinvent their product line every year. And, you know, at some point, the growth curve is going to slow and the growth curve has been slowing, but got a lot of money into it at 12 or 13 times. And so, you know, the question for me is, I mean, A, you got to give them credit because, you know, taking a stock portfolio that was as rich as it was in 98 and that pivot away from stocks by buying Genry and buying bonds was brilliant. His pivots over time have been brilliant. I think even when he closed his partnership for, formally in 69, but started that process in 66, having gotten control of Berkshire in 65, you know, his timing on when overall market levels are cheap or dear is very good. His individual stock picking is very good. And he's handicapped by running, you know, the high class problem of having a whole bunch of money. Um, so, I, you know, whether he gets credit for the brilliant decision to back up the truck in Apple or not, I don't care. Um, you know, the gain on the position itself, you know, represents two years of what I'd call normalized earnings at Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, it's been the stock picking consistently over you know, five and a half decades that has driven the bus on, on, on the compounding of capital. And so let the boo birds come at them. And, you know, I'd prefer to have, you know, Mr. Buffett be, you know, yesterday's washout and let's keep the stock cheap. And if we're really in cherry purchase mode, you know, it's probably a mistake to be talking to you on the podcast about it and me writing my letters <laughs> about it, but I'm not sure, you know, the five or six years that my letter has been public that anybody's listening to the Semper Augustus letter on Berkshire. I mean, it just tends to be undervalued and it, it's hard to value. And, 
There's there's a few points in there. One one of them is he spent a little bit of time in this letter defending the conglomerate structure, uh, and and he spent a little bit of time discussing buybacks. There are a few articles that I saw afterwards that Buffett defends the buybacks in Berkshire, which I thought was I didn't I didn't sort of read it that way when I when I saw it. And then Elizabeth Warren did a little tour afterwards, uh, saying that there was a problem with anonymously buying shares in the buying back shares in the market. So just wondered if you could comment a little bit on um, perhaps the difficulties of valuing it in a conglomerate structure like that and whether that, uh, you know, your letter is, you, you, I think you spent a little bit more time on, on Berkshire than Berkshire than Buffett does himself in his own letter. (laughs) And, uh, and perhaps the, 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 uh, the buyback, the the use, the the function of the buybacks, or what the buybacks achieve. Yeah, I think you know when I'm 90, I hope I can write a 15-page letter that the world is willing to read. I mean, there are a lot of people that probably would wish I'd rather write a 15-page letter now, to be honest. Um, well, I think his criticism of conglomerates is fair. The history of conglomerates is terrible. Capital allocation is terrible. The use of their shares as currency and the promotional aspect, knowing that. You're generally having to overpay for businesses when you're doing deals as a conglomerate and your need to retain capital and grow, you know, outside of Teledyne and Singleton, um, you know, there aren't a lot of great ones. And so again, let them be tarred with that. Um, you know, as far as the notion of sherry purchases go, we talked about this, I think last time we, we recorded and I've written about it for years and years. But sherry purchases, and, and he gets into it a little bit in his brief letter this year, are just generally badly done. I mean, they are generally undertaken to offset the dilution that comes on the front end of share issuance with stock options and restricted share units. And you know, if we give away two percent of shares per year, and you know, we're spending you know three percent of market cap per year to try to shrink the share count by a net one, there's no price discipline. There's no sense that price matters. And if you're the CEO and you're on the job for five years, you know, you're going to get rich through the share grants. You're going to get rich through the options and the RSUs. And you have every motivation in the world to drive the stock price up in the short term. Well, the motivation at Berkshire has never been the stock price. The stock stock has been used as a tool, which is the advantage of a conglomerate doing it correctly. And what you don't have at Berkshire is the dilution on the front end. I mean, you know, find the public business where the leadership and, you know, it's, 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 you know, I think, uh, I think it's, it's to, to a point, it's almost silly the way Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger are paid. Um, you know, they've always made a point that, look, we own the thing and we're going to get rich, you know, by not taking a salary and a cut. And, that, and that's been their fashionable thing to do. But you don't have the gross distortion that nearly every other public company has. You don't have the dilution. You don't have the short-term motivation. And so, you know, thank God um, um, Elizabeth Warren is not Treasury Secretary or has never been at the Fed. Um, uh, you know, I think, I, think, I think the abuses that take place on sherry purchases have merit, have a lot of merit. Um, you know, if you look at the broad market for the last 20 years, and you look at the percentage of profits after dividends are paid, which, you know, represent now 40, 45% of overall corporate profit, you know, you've spent 
you being the market, have spent more than the balance of net income buying back shares. And for the last decade, we've been buying back shares at north of 20 to earnings. And so, you know, at 5% or less earnings yields, you know, they, they may be, you know, nominally driving down the share count, but not to the degree to which profits are going out the door. And so there are, you know, companies that abuse the repurchases on that front are diverting the capital allocation process to buying back shares at expensive prices, what you know, in a lot of cases would be north of intrinsic value, and that's destroying shareholder value. How do you Not correct for that? Merger, so. How do you correct for that? Without sort of restricting share buybacks, how do you correct for that? I don't think you will. Um, I don't think the way our society is constructed that we're going we're gonna to motivate management's broadly speaking properly. Um, you know, I think having skin in the game, which is really the motivation of why you would, you know, give, give share grants ha has a lot of merit, but you know, if I was God and sitting on, you know, a lot of boards of directors, comp committees, you know, I would try to tie, um, I would try to tie a lot more of the, the, the hurdle rates, and the required holding periods of the shares to a much longer period of time. I mean, you'd never do it, but why not? If you know the CEO is going to be there for an average of four and a half years, why not say, sure, we'll give you a bunch of share grants. But we know your capital allocation decisions may not bear fruit for five or 10 or 15 years. Why not make the vesting schedules extend beyond the duration of employment? Would never happen. You just get this asynchronous time horizon in terms of corporate behavior. Um, I don't know how you change it. Um, you know, oddly, it takes a recession or a pandemic to shrink share repurchases. You, know, you have the Great Recession and nobody bought a share back. Stocks were down, you know, two thirds. And, you know, the banks and various other industries were forced to raise capital because they were in trouble. So the very moment that the stock price is cheap, you can't buy them back. You're terrified, you need liquidity, and it's just all done in reverse. And so, you know, Berkshire's a very big position of ours. I think I've got a bunch of companies in the portfolio that are gonna do better. But, you know, the, the way a Berkshire as a, as a conglomerate, a poche, a pro, you know, utilizes the share as one of the capital allocation tools has been brilliant. And it's extremely conservatively done and it's rarely copied, which, I think gives Berkshire an enormous advantage over, you know, surely over the history of conglomerates, but over, I think most public companies, which tend to do it badly. It's uh, it's, it's a muddied conversation about share buybacks because the, when you look at them in, in aggregate, they do seem to the maximum, the, the, the greatest number of shares are always bought back at the very peak of the market. And there are no shares bought back at the bottom of the market when, sensibly you'd want it to be the other way around but part of the difficulty is that they all earn most of their profits at the top of their market and at the bottom of the market like we saw in 2009 because the banks had lost so much money S&P 500 earnings were not meaningful for that year and so they just didn't have the liquidity to go and do it in many instances so I, I, it's a it it doesn't surprise me that the argument's ongoing that the argument sort of seems to revive once a year but it's incredibly frustrating that it's such a, because I agree with many of those arguments that, you know, that the buybacks aren't done in the right way, but it's also true that if they're done in the right way, they're incredibly powerful. 
Oh, they are. And, you know, materially powerful. You know, you look at, at the buybacks at $25 billion for the year. And in the last couple quarters at a rate of $9 billion a quarter, you know, spending more than the operating earnings of the business, buying shares back um, and buying them back at, you know, you do the math on, on the average price at which all the shares were retired in 2020 and you were paying 105% of book value on a company that's doing 10 return on equity. It's incredible in a world of zero interest rates. Um, you know, I think, and I've got a table in my letter, which I've always kind of broadcast out, um, you know, kind of this 10 ROE and growth and market value and various multiples to earnings at which, you know, you'd kind of expect to see the market cap of the business a decade hence. And that always assumed no share buybacks because you had 33 years where they didn't buy a share back and they used the capital and, you know, the Gen Ray deal, they used, you know, some of the stock to buy the railroad, but, you know, they've really not been using the stock. So for the last decade, the share count was just flat. They bought a little bit back two years ago, and then, you know, 5 billion the prior year, then the 25 billion this past year. But they're big numbers. I mean, you know, if Berkshire's running operating earnings of mid 20s to high 20 billions, and if they're going to be buying back at that $3 billion kind of uh, a month rate, you're looking at 36 billion on an annualized basis, which is way more than the operating earnings of the business. You know, I get to 40 plus billion in total Berkshire profitability. But some of that's not not cash capital that comes to Berkshire. 10 billion of my number is the retained earnings of the stock market investees. Um, you, know, you have the dividends coming in, a little bit of interest anymore coming in. But you know, one aspect of the letter that um, you know that that Mr. Buffett really delved into, and it was discussed at last year's meeting, and I've been writing about for the last six years is the capital that's being spent at the railroad and at the energy operations um, are sizably in excess of depreciation. You know, Mr. Buffett pointed out, I've got a table in my letter that will show you that in the last, you know, since they bought the railroad that they've spent twice as much on CapEx as they've expended on depreciation. And a portion of that is growthy. I mean, there's a lot of maintenance CapEx in the railroad that exceeds depreciation expense, but in the energy businesses, it's the same dynamic and they're spending twice as much CapEx in the energy operations as they are. And so, you know, you've got $7 billion, let's say, uh, north of the $8 billion depreciation charge that's going out the door in CapEx, all of which is getting, you know, a lot of which is getting a, a, a you know, regulated return or close to a regulated return. The spending of the energy operation, which never sends dividends or profits back to Omaha, coupled with the debt that's used to kind of grow that business in concert. You know, you, you know, your, your utility and energy and these regulated pipeline businesses, the regulated electric utilities are all gonna run a blend between 40 and 60% debt to capital. And Berkshire's kind of levered this thing up towards running closer to the 60% level. So, you know, if, if the utility operations are gonna retain all of their profit, which you know is three and a half, closer to four and a half billion dollars, when you adjust for some of the tax benefits that you don't see on the gap earnings number, you know they'll they'll gear that up with an augment that retained earnings portion with more debt, and so it's an enormously uh, growing business on capex. But that incremental profit that's not coming back to Omaha is capex out the door. So 
you know, you really only have maybe $25 billion, let's say, available per year in terms of free cash profit with which, with, with which to allocate capital. And, you know, if all or more of that is going to go to sherry purchases, then you can make the assumption that over time, that cash balance that also gets lamented so heavily <laughs> will get driven down. But, you know, the reality on the cash balance is it's not that high. You know, if you look at total total cash at 130 whatever billion dollars, you've got debt in the business of 125 billion dollars. So you've got slightly more cash than debt. That's been the case consistently for the last 20 years. Cash is up a little bit, but I mean, last year they they net net issued 14 or so billion dollars in new debt. And so I think what gets lost under the surface capital allocation is what they're doing in this very low interest rate environment with a risk perhaps down the road of high levels of inflation, they have lengthened the maturity structure of the railroad and of the utilities and even of the holding company debt. And they're borrowing at incredibly low interest rates. You know, the, the utilities and the railroad are borrowing in low fours. The holding company is borrowing at one and they're lengthening the maturities out. So they're, they've net, so cash has gone up, but Part of that cash is the net inflows from net, you know, retirement of debt, but also it's the net new debt being taken on in some, in some cases to, you know, augment the CapEx spending at the utility operations, but they're borrowing at really attractive rates. And if, if borrowing today, and I don't know if rates are going to go up anytime soon, I'm more of a deflationist for the time being, and then we'll pivot to hyperinflation, <laughs> hopefully not in my lifetime, but you know, why, why rush? I mean, Berkshire's got almost $900 billion in total assets. And so you have a little over $100 billion in cash. You know, half of that cash isn't going to get spent. You know, there's four or five billion that sits kind of as working capital in the railroad and the utilities. I think there's probably $20 billion in cash at the MSR group, um, you know, it, which includes now the finance businesses. And then you've got some cash of the holding company, but there's only maybe $70 billion of cash that's available to spend. And 25 billion went out the door last year on repurchases at very attractive prices. I think, you know, the what, what I'd hate to see, again, and I go back to kind of this misnomer about money management is you don't want a high stock price because they're disciplined enough at Berkshire, unlike most public companies, to cease the share repurchases at unattractive prices. And I don't know what that number is. I know what my intrinsic value number is. But if you look at that table I've got in my letter, I Ill, so I've basically said they're gonna take half of income, half of my normalized income and buy back shares, which would be in today's dollars about $22 billion a year. So book value grows by half, half, of, the, half of the historic rate, because again, half the profit is not retained and driving book value higher. It's going out the door to buy back shares. And I've got scenarios for multiples to book, ranging from an improbable, impossible half a book. Stock hadn't traded there since the 1960s and 70s, all the way up to 200% a book. But the, 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 the realistic range there in the middle of the table is between book value and 120% a book and 150% a book. And I have scenarios for all three of those ranges. And you could kind of pinpoint where you think the average buybacks might take place over time. And it would require the stock being cheap, cheap enough to get that much cash out the door on the buybacks. 
but I also assume two ranges for durable return on equity, a kind of a worst case scenario of eight and what I think is still your kind of steady case, a steady state case of 10. And what you'll see is if that winds up being kind of the program and we are really gonna spend about half of my uh, earnings number per year, which is you know two thirds of two thirds or more of operating earnings. Again, holding aside that cash that's not really available to Berkshire, but it's genuine profitability. You're going to drive the share count down by somewhere between 25 and 40 percent. And done intelligently, you know, even if the multiple to earnings doesn't deviate from today's 13, you're going to make more than the ROE by driving the share count down at, at, at a discount to what you'd call intrinsic value. And so it's, you know, if it's an acknowledgement that we're such a big entity that, uh, you know, these share purchases are an attractive use of capital, then bully, you know, I, I think they could have gotten there a few years ago and had a chance to buy the stock back, but you had that artificial floor in place originally at 110%, but then they said, we won't buy shares back uh, you know, above 120% a book. Well, if you take a 10 ROE and you pay 120% of that number, that effectively is an earnings yield of 8.33%. So I think the hurdle rate at Berkshire has always been 10. I think it's still, you know, close to 10. I think in the regulated utility operation and these transmission assets that they're buying from Dominion, and, you know, Mr. Buffett talked about the uh, the enormous sums that are being spent on on the grid in the Western United States, you know, the remoteness of solar and, and, and wind operations, you've got to rebuild that grid. And to do so, you've got to get, you know, a regulated return from the regulators. And they've worked all that out, but that's all done at 10. And that number might get driven down. And if you hold interest rates at zero for a long, long time, which goes to that deflation case, the, the regulators are going to drive it down a little bit. But the reality is, Berkshire's competitors, generally speaking, in the electric utility world, don't earn their allowed rates of return. If the allowed return is 10, most of them earn eight. And there's, there's a drag. And what an advantage in Berkshire's case to not pay dividends out to shareholders. You know, the majority of electric utilities are paying half a profit to, or more. You know, a lot of them pay 80, 90%. So to the extent they need to, to refurbish infrastructure, You've got to borrow and you've got to issue new shares. And so you see dilution over time. And you know, these things trade at 20 plus times earnings. Berkshire doesn't have that problem. You know, they have the use of all of that capital in places that they've identified um, spending opportunities. And it's not an insignificant portion of the free cash profitability at Berkshire each year. So you know, I think the capital, I, I think overall in terms of my grade for the year at Berkshire, A, A plus, I mean, um, you know, if we're really going to buy shares back at good prices now with meaningful amounts of capital, that's very good for the shareholder long-term. Uh, we, I need to take you back to the, uh, the hyperinflation comment. There's a, you, you've, you've got a discussion in your letter. So let's, um, perhaps just dis discuss the, uh, what you see playing out. I, Toby, I don't know. Um, I've been worried about debt for the, the entirety of my career. I got into the business in 91, you know, debt had been rising since 1981 as interest rates had come down. And by the time we got to the market peak in 2000, 
you had $10 trillion in GDP and $25 trillion in debt. And you looked at any chart of historic debt levels and thought, oh my God, total credit market debt is higher now than it's ever been. This is too high. Well, you have the 50% bear market, you have the recession in 02. Greenspan takes rates down. We ramped up the real estate market and over the next seven years from the 2000 peak, we grew GDP by 4 trillion and we took on another $25 trillion in debt. So we ran debt up to 350% of GDP. And then you thought, oh my God, this is crazy, it's bad. And you had the great recession, which really could have just wiped out the entire financial system of the globe. And thanks to our central bankers here and abroad, you know, we introduced all these iterations of QE and you know, we're running big budget deficits, the majority of which sit on the balance sheets of the central banks. And we've spent in, you know, from the, from the 07 kind of to 2019, you know, we, we kind of maintained that 350% total credit market debt to GDP. The government component of total debt has been on the rise, of course, with the QE. And, you know, government debt's never been higher. You know, we're now, you know, north of where we were in World War II. Um, you know, I think the reality is, government spending is not generally stimulative and it's really not stimulative at high levels of debt. So we have a lot more transfer payments in place now, mandatory spending. You know, the majority of what took place during the pandemic was just wealth transfer. We were gonna run a trillion dollar deficit in 2020, which was gonna be on what was a $22 trillion economy. I mean, that was gonna be you know, a high 4%, maybe 4.7, 4.8% deficit. We were at a $3.1 trillion deficit. Tax revenues, which were going to be, I don't know, four trillion, were lower, were less. Outlays were going to be five trillion, were higher by a lot, and you wound up running a three point one trillion dollar deficit. We're now into our third stimulus program. We're giving money to people that are working. You know, you have a job. I mean, I, I, why why they couldn't figure out this? This is a sidebar comment, which will get me into trouble. But why could they not figure out and, and identify the people in need? I mean, why not take people that are out of work and administer the stimulus, administer the aid through the, the state unemployment offices? I mean, they're all good at it. They know who's not working, but we're giving, we're giving lots and lots of money to people that actually have jobs, which is insanity. So we're going to do another $1.9 trillion stimulus. And this is not a political comment. I mean, I've watched 40 years of these buffoons in Washington. Nobody has a governor on spending. Republicans have spent, Democrats have spent. There's not, I find the elected official that, that, that is willing to not spend. And so now we know debt levels are really high. Now we're total credit market debt when you include the portion of government debt that sits on the balance sheet at the Fed. Now we're over 400, 400% debt to GDP. So when Jay Powell says, well, we're going to keep interest rates at zero for the foreseeable future. They're going to keep them at zero forever. You can't go back to a normal term structure at all. And so what I don't know is you can take the increase in debt and everybody says, well, goodness gracious, M2 was up 25% year over year. What they miss is the fact that the monetary base was up 50%. And so you know, you have a lot of cash, a lot of bank capital sitting on the balance sheet at the Fed, which is a liability of the Federal Reserve. 
you have the total assets of the Federal Reserve, which were $850 billion before the Great Recession. They ran that up to four and a half trillion, tried to run it off. They couldn't run it off, got into a liquidity crisis in 19. Then you have the pandemic. Now you're $7.4, $7.5 trillion, which you know, you're on the order of a third, more, more than a third of GDP. Well, Japan's JGB, you know, the, 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 the Central Bank of Japan's balance sheet is 100% of GDP. They own stocks, they own ETFs. So we have a lot of room still to run QE from here to infinity. And I don't know what that transmission is, but the velocity of money is not up, it's down. I've watched it go down for the majority of my career. So, you know, money is not circulating in the economy. You have this cash sitting, earning 10 basis points at, at the Fed reserves. We don't, we don't even have required reserves anymore. We suspended those early in the pandemic, but there's no loan demand. You have this whole other kind of non-fiat uh, money, fractional lending system capital that sits in levered finance, um, you know, CLOs and what have you, um, you know, kind of the back to the long-term capital management in 1994. You've got enormous amounts of leverage that exists outside of the banking system. And you, know, you couple in then un, un, non-balance sheet, off-balance sheet liabilities for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and all of our social contracts. And there's an enormous amount of leverage. To me, I guess, I've always said you've got two tails of the distribution curve. And one is when you have extreme levels of debt, the natural tendency is to work off that debt in a deflation. So you restructure the overlevered. You go bankrupt, the debt holders become the equity holders and you clean up debt that way. You can also grow very slowly uh, by you know, running inflation at 2% a year and slowly shrink debt. But to do that, you've got to live within your means. You've got to quit running debt levels up at the same rate as economic output. You can't keep debt at 350% of GDP. So the most expedient thing to do when you're on an electoral cycle of two years or four years or six years is to get yourself reelected. You've got constituents. Nobody's that required these idiots to read, you know, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. There are no Austrian economists in, in Washington. And so the easiest thing to do is just keep spending and replace debt with debt. And if you can fund it all in the treasury market at 0%, there's no cost. So you can have an unlimited amount of debt on the balance sheet. Ultimately, ultimately, whether you get a very long protracted deflation, which would be my bet, at least for now, perhaps for a long time, if that transitions into hyperinflation, if the Federal Reserve and the central banks directly pay the bills of the government without financing in the treasury market and running deficit spending, but we just take our ex exogenous circumstances and we just give money directly to people, which is kind of what we've done, but not really, then that transmission mechanism works. And so I wrote a little bit about digital currency. Um, you, know, you know, we've had digital currency forever. I mean, I can't tell you the last time I went to the bank and used cash, I don't get any, I don't go to the ATM, but digital Fed dollars are an entirely different animal. And you know, if, we, if we really can take the physical currency that's in existence, and again, the monetary base, which is about $5 trillion, is currency in circulation. And it's, it's, it's bank reserves on deposit at the Fed and it's cash in bank vaults. And that's 
five and a half trillion dollars, let's say. If we go down the path of eliminating the physical currency and you know, the Fed gives money, you know, if we do our stimulus program, not the way we're gonna do it and run it through treasury deficit, but if the Fed just gives money to those people that the IRS applies a social security number for, we just give people money. Um, that then could conceivably turn into a hyperinflation. You know, it, it, hyperinflation effectively to me is when you've observed it throughout history, you've observed it more recently in Venezuela, you know, you've got, you know, perhaps the beginnings of it in Argentina. Uh, we certainly saw it in, in Zimbabwe, but you go back to um, the, the Weimar Republic, you look at, you know, Hungary post-World War II, the Chinese had a hyperinflation for, you know, 15 years in the 1930s and, and through, through the mid 40s. Um, you know, in all cases, the, the citizenry does not want to own the currency. They lose confidence in the currency. So now we have Bitcoin and all this, but we're not there yet. Um, but if we have digital dollars and we don't have cash in the bank earning zero, I mean, if, if we really have a deflationary period, which the central banks are fighting like hell, if we really are going to have deflation, which can be a 1%, 2%, 3%, 4% decline in the price level, decline in wages, decline in housing prices, we're not set up for that in a, in a levered society. You see what happens to businesses that are levered when their revenues decline and they have operational leverage. You, know, you go bankrupt. So we have now digital dollars on deposit earning zero. Well, if you can't take your cash out and put it under the mattress, and keep it at zero. I mean, at zero, you win if the deflation rate is two, but if they charge you a penalty rate of 3% or 4% or 5%, they're trying to get money out of the currency. And again, I don't know what that transmission mechanism is, but with today's debt levels that are unsustainable, I don't know how it plays out. And so I kind of lamented for 10 or 15 pages of the letter you know, this, this concern about the tales of deflation on one end and hyperinflation on the other end having fattened. And I never thought, you know, we'd see this in my lifetime to actually have to deal with it. And I kind of frankly believe that we're going to have to deal with it now. And so how do you survive that as a steward of capital? What do you do? And, you know, I find circling back to Berkshire, for example, what an enormous benefit Berkshire has the way they've capitalized the business and the way it is capitalized. I mean, the last thing you'd want to own in a hyperinflation, if we go down that path, and you know, they're trying to take us down the inflationary path, the last thing you want to own is cash. The last thing you want to own is bonds. You want to own long duration, durable assets. In the business world, you want to own businesses that have pricing power. Well, you know, who happens to be among the largest owners of bonds in the world? Insurance companies. You know, the vast majority of insurers are required either statutorily by insurance commissioners or by regulators or by customers to have large percentages of their invested capital and in fixed income and cash. And that's a function of, you know, reserves required to pay losses. Well, Berkshire, if you take Berkshire's reinsurance, well, let's just take, I'll go down, I'll go down this path. Take all of Berkshire's insurance operations, which is, insurance is almost half. It's 45%, let's say, of the entire value of Berkshire Hathaway. Take Geico, which writes two thirds of Berkshire's insurance premiums. 
Well, in auto insurance, you're allowed to write $3 a premium for every dollar of capital. And so on this premium volume that declined because of the pandemic and the rebates they were giving away, Berkshire's Geico is going to wind up doing $40 billion, let's say, over the next 12, 14, you know, 15 months on an annualized basis. So that's two thirds of their 60 plus billion dollars in premium volume. They only need $15 billion in capital to write that amount of business. You know, they probably have $20 billion. Well, all of Berkshire's statutory capital in insurance is about $240 billion. So 20 of that goes to Geico. Then you've got the Berkshire primary group, the new specialty business that they seeded a couple, three years ago, all the home state businesses, all the med mal businesses. That group does about $10 billion in premium volume and, you know, would require, you know, probably a dollar in capital for every dollar of premium volume written there. So, you know, on the order of $10 billion, but even let's say it's $20 billion, give it 20. So now you've got Geico with 20 billion in capital, you've got the primary businesses with 20 billion in capital. Either that leaves $200 billion for the reinsurance operations, national indemnity and Genray. Combined, the reinsurance businesses write um, you know, $20 billion in premiums, let's say. And they've got $200 billion in capital. They're writing, you know, what has averaged probably 12, 13, 14 cents in premiums for every dollar of capital. Take all the rest of the insurance operators. Munich Ray writes a dollar in capital for every dollar in premium. I mean, the big European reinsurers just have never really found a policy they didn't want to write. You don't see them pull back when prices are not, are not healthy. And so there's a very thin layer of capital there. Well, Berkshire, with their $200 billion, Berkshire writes, if they're so on $20 billion in premium, they write less than 10% of all of the premium volume for all of the reinsurers globally, maybe 7%. They have a third of the capital. There's $600 billion in total reinsurance capital globally. If you throw in some of the exotic capital, like insurance-linked securities and cat bonds and all that, it's maybe $700 billion, but Berkshire has $200 billion of the $600 or $700 billion, a third of the capital, right, 7% of the premium. So when things like COVID comes along and the global reinsurance industry now has losses so far that total $30 billion, 5% of capital, Berkshire's COVID losses are just over a billion dollars, you know? The advantage there in this hyperinflationary context is it's the only insurance operation on the planet that has the vast majority of its reserves invested in common stocks. And if the asset class you don't want to own is bonds, Berkshire doesn't own bonds. They got 20 billion in bonds, $65 billion in cash in the insurance operations. The stock portfolio inside of Berkshire is largely held at the insurance operations and it's over $250 billion. So historically, stocks have proved somewhat of a hedge against very high levels of inflation and hyperinflation. If you look at the Caracas stock market last I year, do all the time. The, it, it, the currency goes to nothing, stock market goes up. It's the best performing stock market in the world <laughs> in local terms. So you got to own the right kind of businesses and you know, you think about a Verizon purchase, that's an earning power business. They get the pipe coming into the house. They have pricing power. You know, the contracts roll fairly regularly. 
they can raise prices. You know, it's a balance sheet that can withstand high levels of inflation. You look across the portfolio. I'd rather own the stock portfolio than I would a bond portfolio. And that just gives Berkshire immense hedged protection if we go down the path of high levels of inflation. Well, let's talk about the stock market a little bit because you you spent some time discussing um, peaks and troughs in the stock market. And it's one of my favorite topics too. We were speaking earlier about Buffett winding up the uh, the partnership in 66, which is a historic peak on a cyclically adjusted PE basis. And then 82 is about that historic low. You spent some time going through um, peaks and troughs in your in your letter and i just perhaps in in that comment on if we do in fact go the way of japan uh what's japan's stock market been like for the last 30 years or so and i think and i think it's been reasonably i think it's been reasonably favorable for uh for value guys funnily enough well berkshire's got the you know they got six and a half billion dollars put out in the five trading companies the tochu made it into the top list of holdings but you know, I did the math on them and they were valued at on the order of $7.7 billion at year end. And he's buying earning power at seven or eight times earnings. Um, stock market's negative from 1989. Negative. The Nikkei peaked at 39,000 and change. It's negative. Japanese nominal GDP was about $5 trillion. So you know, what did I say? Our, our GDP was $10 trillion in 2000. So, you know, the Japanese economy was the second biggest economy in the world in 1989, 10 years before, you know, the U.S. economy in my mind kind of peaked in terms of, you know, being able to grow in inflation adjusted and population adjusted terms. But in nominal terms, they were $5 trillion GDP and it's still about $5 trillion. I mean, it, that economy has not grown in 30 years which is incredible, incredible. And the stock market's negative for that fact. But, you know, the stock market was way ahead of itself. The Japanese economy had boomed. I've got a great chart in my letter on, on kind of the, the long tail growth and real GDP per capita globally. And you can see post-World War II, Japan hadn't entered the trading world prior to World War II. China hadn't come in until about 60 years ago. And we had the Marshall Plan and then, you know, we helped finance the Japanese recovery. We rebuilt the economy. Japan had a horrible war with China. That was, that was really the, you know, until we had Pearl Harbor, Japanese were fighting the Chinese and they were just killing each other. I mean, million, I mean millions and millions died. But the Japanese mere miraculous recovery post-World War II was incredible. And, you know, they became a major, major global trading power. And they exported their technologies they were not a net importer. They were an exporter. They started off as a very low cost producer and they brought a, a lower and a middle class into a middle and upper class in a hurry. And the Japanese economy was the wonder of the world in 1989. Um, you know, when I went to college in 1987 to the Air Force Academy for my first six months, I hadn't taken a foreign language and I thought I better study Japanese, and which was one of the reasons I didn't stay at the Air Force Academy. I couldn't handle it. Um, but the, but the the market traded at 80 to 100 times earnings. I mean, the Japanese bought Pebble Beach. They bought Rockefeller Center and they paid top dollar, but they had a very strong currency at the time. And who would have known that they were going to go sideways 
you know, for the next three decades. Who knows, who knew that the stock market was going to go down, but it took three decades to work that down. So the parallel there is Japan's been fighting deflation now for 30 years and, and their central bank has had dozens of iterations of QE. I mean, they invented you know, they the term, didn't they? They, they? they invented QE. They invented negative interest rates. They invented a lot of things that you know, the Europeans are now adopting and that, that were the latest to the party in adopting. The Japanese have been there. They've had, despite this massive attempt to introduce inflation into their insular economy, they've had no success. And I think there's a lesson there. Um, you know, the difference is the United States is the reserve currency of the world. And, you know, when you go back and talk about all those hyperinflations that I mentioned, you know, they were all insulated. They, they were all one off. So if you were in Argentina or Brazil, who have had myriad, you know, multiple different currencies over the years, and you know it's coming and you're among the wealthy, well, the first thing you do is just get your money out of the country. So you get to the United States, you get to Switzerland. Um, and, you know, you come back once you've had the hyperinflation. And so there's a reason why Argentinians and Brazilians own a whole bunch of land, uh, arable farmland, they own ranch land and cattle because they've seen their currencies destroyed. Well, before long, the governments impose currency controls and you can't get your money out. And so you light the currency on fire and you reintroduce a new one and do it again. And it's isolated. Well, now we've got our problems. The Europeans have their problems. The Japanese have their problems. The Chinese have their problems. So we've, we've all gorged on debt and we're all kind of in a race to the bottom in terms of devaluation of currency. So you can't really leave. And maybe that's the, the notion of Bitcoin. And I'm not sure that's the right answer, but we're on a global stage now in terms of the problem. And um, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the reality is given debt levels that have to be worked down, if we apply what Japan has done on an insulated basis, where you know almost all Japanese government debt is owned internally by the Japanese, we still have a lot of our debt that's externally owned by our foreign creditors because we've been running trade deficits for a long time. But if, if you take the net trade out of the mix and you just say the entire global economy is now what was a Japanese island, then we're probably all looking at deflation for a long time. And we, we're now all resolved to try to introduce inflation. And again, I don't know what that transmission mechanism or where you flip the switch, which makes what, what, what we do, what you and I have to do as stewards of capital is so damn difficult today because we're dealing with things that I'd rather not have to deal with. You know, when Mr. Buffett talks about the wonderful growth and invest in America, well, he came onto the stage in the depths of the depression. Um, and, you know, had this, you know, output boom here and abroad post-World War II that was just a massive tailwind. So real GDP per capita was growing at two and a half to three and a half percent. We're done with those days. You know, real GDP per capita is growing at less than one. And to work down the level of debt that we have to work off, I think it's a real case to be made that if we look out 30 years and kind of paint ourselves into the Japanese corner, we have very little growth in real GDP per capita. You know, the United States tends, happens to be in a little bit better shape. <laughs> you know, we have marginally better demographics. Um, you know, we have some population growth. It's slower than it's been in the history of our country. 
you know, it's been less than 1% for a handful of years, but, you know, we benefit from immigration of both high-skilled and non-skilled laborers. We need to get people that come into this country onto our payrolls and into our taxpaying system. But you win this thing through um, uh, population growth. Japanese, part of their problem is they've had no population growth. It's a very old society. The Chinese economy, which has been this booming miracle for 60 years, I mean, they've gone from nothing to a massive number two now in the world economy in a shorter period of time than it's ever been done. But they've had, at their own doing, the dumbest demographic policies that you can imagine from their one-child policy back in the 70s, which they finally suspended four or five years ago, they are running into not a slow drop off in a demographic problem, but they're running into an explosionary problem where they're going to have a very, very old population now going forward. And, you know, they've entered the world of, you know, the middle class uh, and, you know, we've got this global population problem as well. We have these enormous social contracts. Well, the easiest thing to do is eliminate the contracts through devaluation of the currency, which again is, makes our lives so much more complicated than they have to be because, you know, Mr. Buffett for the majority of his career had these enormous tailwinds, which have been slowing since 2000. And to your point, he got the pivot right. He got out of the stock market effectively in the late 1960s. He effectively got out of the stock market in 1998 with the Gen Ray deal. I mean, he took the stock portion of Berkshire Hathaway, which was 115% of book value and 65 or so percent of total firm assets and cut stocks down to 69 or 70% and cut the stock portfolio as a percentage of total assets down to about 30%. So he cut it in half. So that allowed all of that debt capital that he bought from Genria to go do everything else that he's done. So he's gotten the timing of these things right. Uh, why is he net borrowing $14 billion at 30 and 40 and 90 year maturities? Um, you know, it's one of those things, you know, watch what he does and not what he says. Um, I, I'm, I'm confused. I mean, I'm, I'm as confused as I've been in a long time because I kind of, I think I, I can see the path that's coming. I just don't know how we evolve. I think this, this excess today in Bitcoin, people say it's trading for a fraction of where it's going to trade. I don't think that's the answer. Um, and, and I say it, I say it because, you know, housing prices are up 10% but that's a supply and demand thing. Loaf of bread hasn't really changed by much. I think if you were in Weimar, Germany and you knew it was coming, you got your money out of the country if you could, you went to the United States. And at a point, you know, part of the reason why the wealthy leave their various respective countries is for personal safety as well. It's not just preservation of wealth, but it's personal safety. You don't go to the United States because you're gonna get rich in a hurry. You don't leave Venezuela because you're expecting to get really wealthy. So watching this Bitcoin go from 10,000 to 50,000 in a short period of time, I don't believe that the Winklevoss twins are going to be the richest people in the world next to the guy we've never seen who invented Bitcoin and limited the supply at 21, billion or 21 million units or whatever it is. You're not supposed to get rich. You're supposed to be preserving wealth. I mean, my objective with me and my clients is to maintain the maintain and you know nominally grow the purchasing power of our capital. 
And all these young investors that have jumped into this Bitcoin, and now you know, you've got a couple institutions that have jumped into Bitcoin. It's not a mindset. It should be a mindset of we're concerned about hyperinflation or we're just trying to preserve our standing in life. You shouldn't be able to go make five times your money and come back in. And if you had a million dollar house that you just bought six months ago, you know, now you can afford a $5 million house. That's not, that's not what, you know, removing yourself from fiat currency is supposed to be. So I'm very jaded that it's not much more than a greater fool theory asset class and hell it could get very institutionalized and you can see a lot of flows and with limited supply you know you, you could really run it up in price but i i, I think it, it's a disservice i think to these real concerns about hyperinflation and i don't think the governments are going to go for it i mean they have the printing presses um you know we have our fiat monetary system uh, we have our our fractional lending system which is how monetary transmission tends to take place and I just don't believe the Federal Reserve is going to allow Bitcoin to usurp fiat currency. You know, they've got a control on it, and I don't see them giving that up. And so how do you do that? I don't know. Do they tax it at 90% or 100%? Do they make it illegal? I don't know. I don't know how they deal with it. But I'm very, very suspicious, at least so far. And I've tried to read some and stay up a little bit. And I don't know as much as some of the very smart guys who have gotten into it. But it doesn't remove my concerns about, you know, what could be, you know, the tales of deflation to inflation. Chris, uh, that's uh, just about coming up on time for us. Um, if uh, folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Oh, you know, our website, probably semperaugustus.com has uh, a whole host of my old letters back to the late 1990s. We've been 22 years in business. All my contact information is is on the website. I'm on Twitter. I shouldn't be on Twitter. I mean, <laughs> none I, of us should be. I've had some fun. And I've never talked publicly about Bitcoin until this moment. And I've never tweeted. I tweeted about Twitter a couple of times. And we actually put on a little short position late last year. Um, I was blown away at the the response of the the, the Twitter crowd. Um, entertaining. I mean, I spent half a day with the feedback of a couple of my early big tweets that got a lot of response, and just kind of spent a few hours on a Sunday laughing about the response. I mean, it, very similar to the cocktail crowd back in the late 1990s. I mean, the doctors and the lawyers that were convinced in the tech bubble and the internet bubble, they all lost 80 percent or 90 percent. That group of investors is not back in this current iteration because they blew themselves up in 2002, they blew themselves up in 08, and they're not doing it again. You know, they you know they touched the rail. But so I, I am on Twitter, but um, I, I'd say I, I wouldn't I wouldn't listen to my tweets. Those are those are fun and personal. You know, the, if you want to know kind of what I'm thinking, you can read through the archives of my client letters on the website. That's, uh, I highly recommend everybody does that. Christopher Bloomstrand, Semper Augustus, thank you very much for your time, sir. Thanks, Toby. Always fun.